Joe presents TKO together with 32 Red. Welcome to round 13 of TKO on Joe. We're in Liverpool this week and given our guest this afternoon, we thought an opportune moment to come to the great stadium of Anfield and Carl Liverpool at this point so close yeah. um, to grabbing their first Premier League trophy. Close to potentially winning the league, the Premier League for the first time, potentially going to be European champions again. Um, and our guest, I think, is, is very excited. Wouldn't he love it? Jamie Carragher, second most capped ever player for Liverpool, 737 appearances for the club, England legend as well, and very kindly has agreed to come on our podcast. Jamie Carragher is our guest this afternoon. Two FA Cups, three League Cups, UEFA Cup, Champions League, but the one that evaded you was, of course, the, the Premier League. How much would it mean to you personally to see them do it this year? I'd love it. Really, more just to put it to bed, the talk of never winning yeah. the, the Premier League. Really, it's not so much for the for the the, the play. I mean, I don't really know the players. You know, I finished five or six years ago, and this would be great for them. They become legendary figures in Liverpool's history, and rightly so. But more for the lads who know go the game home and away. My son goes home and away now everywhere, and, and you know what it it means. You knew that as a player, but I think. Even sometimes coming out of playing, you're sometimes in a bubble. I don't know what it was like for you in your box, and mm. sometimes you just, you know, it's just a small group of people around you. But mm. I think when you, you come out of it, and I go to games with Sky, and also at times as a fan myself, I've got a season ticket. It's massive, you know, to the people what it means. I know that's the same for every supporter around the country, but I just love it for the supporters to be able to celebrate it. You a Liverpool fan as a boy, have you still got a little soft spot for him? Yeah, I do. I was as a kid, and I say, when people ask me, who do you follow now? I, I don't really say I follow anyone because I feel like you need to be going to games to be a proper supporter. Yeah. And I keep a close eye on Liverpool. I remember when I was a kid, actually, I got there's a picture of me in the boxing club, skipping with, remember the, the cream and black? Carlsberg. Oh yeah. I had a, a picture of that top one, and I got <laughs> as a kid. You know the big. That was my my first ever game for Liverpool. I think I wore that. Was it? Was it? It was a nice kit, but I had a. You know the big coats the managers wore, like Arsene Wenger's yeah, coat, the big yeah. long one. Yeah, for... I got my dad to get me one air for my birthday as well. So I used to walk to school. With <laughs> it was a just a normal size coat. That was <laughs> <laughs> the cream and black one. So I was I was a Liverpool fan when I was a kid, but I'd love to see them win the league. Love to see them win mm. the league. I mean, I guess you, you were involved in the, like the parade when they won the Champions League, so you come home and you've seen the city kind of come to life, but it's been a few years since any, any major silverware. It would be a, a totally different place, wouldn't it, if they were to pull it off? It would. It, listen, I think it would be the biggest party you could probably ever remember, certainly since 2005 in this city. I mean, the interesting thing with Liverpool is, you know, for the last few, few weeks they've been in the Champions League and the league, and, and every other club in Europe... If you're asked them would you rather win the Champions League or the league, everyone will say the Champions League because the Champions League is a bigger trophy than your, than your domestic league title. Mm. But for Liverpool, it's different. It, it is something uh, special, that league title, if they can get you know, another one there, gets them one closer to Manchester United. But also to win the first one in almost 29, 30 years would be, would be something special. And it's all everyone on the streets talks about. Every time you bump into someone, can we do it? Can we do it? And this has been going on for, for weeks and months really, uh, with the supporters. And it, it's almost... The Champions League's almost like an afterthought, even though we're in the semi-final against Barcelona. Yeah. People aren't really even yeah. speaking about it. And it's a massive game, you know, Barcelona, Champions League semi-final. But everyone's just obsessed with the league. Yeah. We'll come on to your career a little bit later, second half of the show. I know you're also quite a big fight fan. 
Liverpool's produced some great champions over the years. John Conti's probably the most famous. Tony Belly's certainly up there these days. Belly thinks he is. Belly definitely thinks he is. <laughs> um, Conti was kind of the last, I think just a little bit before your time. I think yeah. he kind of hung him up in 80. He was the last of the 15-round fighters. So what was it that drew you to, to the sport as a kid? Well, I think in, in Liverpool, it feels like there is only two sports in the city, uh, football and boxing. So we're obviously we're in the, the, the famous returns of boxing uh, club now, but I used to go to another one on, on Marsh Lane, ABC. Mm. Uh, I had a little go there and it wasn't for me. My brother had a few fights. So that, that was the thing. I think every kid in Liverpool, you'd either get thrown into, you'd get thrown into football and boxing and it's one or the other. There's nothing, mm. there's nothing else, really. My younger brother now does white collar is he? fighting. How old is he then? My brother, he's five years younger than me, so he'll be, he'll be 36 wow. now, yeah. So we fought, because I've seen that, was your first professional fight? Yeah, we were yeah. yeah, yeah, So was, that's, yeah. that's where he fights, that, well, that's, he's had four or five white-collar fights. He hasn't lost yet, wow. actually, so he's a, he's a bit of a lump. <laughs> so uh, he's still doing that, raising a few quid for charity. So, uh, yeah, that's where that, I suppose the passion comes from, really. You know, it's, it's Liverpool or Everton and boxing. Yeah, because we're just across the water from Belfast. Do you remember your debut? I kind of remember it. It was the first fight on, four-rounder against, don't remember the guy's name, Hungarian guy. Not very good. Whatever, yeah. Yeah, but it was like <laughs> five o'clock start. You know, no one's there apart from my family, pretty much. So I remember it, but that's where it was. It was in the Olympia, just down the road. But just, just talking about, like, Liverpool and Belfast, I think there's a load of similarities between them. And mm-hmm. you were saying there about... It was either boxing or football. Like, just two working-class cities. And that's what it is in a lot of these places, boxing or football. Mm. Not really big rugby players or rugby cities. Yeah. Um, GAA a little bit in Belfast, but i done both as a kid. I'd have loved to have been a footballer, but I wasn't good enough. What position? I used to play centre midfield yeah. when I was a kid. Couldn't see you as like, centre-back. Nah, nah, but too small. <laughs> but like, crosses. A wee bit like Dennis Ways, get stuck in. and was I stuck the boot in, I liked the tackle, but... I loved football, but I just wasn't, I wasn't good enough. Got yeah. chinned in a game, didn't you? I got chinned. I first, like, yeah. properly... Yeah, I was a kid. <laughs> we were so playing. that's why you went to boxing? <laughs> well, yeah, I, so, the story is, it was meant to be went in for the County Antrim Championships. It was 16 or 15, 16, something like that. And uh, I played a football game. A boxing trainer asked me not to play. I told him I wasn't going to play. But I played it anyway, and a fight broke out between my team, Locks Eight Boys, and another team called Crumlin Star. And it was kind of a big, like, Protestant-Catholic thing at the time. Protestant team against a Catholic team. And there was a fight broke out, and someone ran from about that wall, and I turned into a big dig. <laughs> and he chinned me, like, he probably chinned me, but... Was you known as a boxer? Well, I, was an, did... I was known as a boxer. So that's why you so got it? I... Probably, right. He's yeah. dined on, out on that for years. Your man's... Yeah. Your... I know his name, I'll not say it on the, on the podcast, but... Um, oh, go and dig him out. No, no, no. Have you not given him a crack sense? Nah, he's a, he's a big lump. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and he cut my mouth. I had to get stitches in the inside of my mouth and stuff, but that was, that was the only time I was knocked out yeah. playing football. It's crazy, eh? Yeah. So you made your, day. <laughs> <laughs> so you made your debut. That's the only time you've ever boxed here, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Um, I, boxed it, I boxed as an amateur here. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and I love the city. Liverpool's a great place. Mm. We used to stay in, what do you call the hotel, the Adelphi? Yeah. We stayed there. And yeah. the guys like Joe Selkirk <laughs> and stuff on the English teams mm. and big Tony, I think. Tony Bellew was on it and the Smiths as well. Um, I was obviously representing Ireland at the time, but yeah, Liverpool's a good place. Yeah, how did you get to know Tony and all the Smith brothers just from knocking around in the gyms? 
Yeah, I mean, coming here, obviously, probably coming here, Tony, I've always known the Smiths. They're only from just outside the gym, you know, Kirkdale, that we're in, and Bootle, which is sort yeah. of the next town. Tony's from the, the south end of, of the city, so there's always that big rivalry between the north end and the south end, really. And uh, just through coming in, I knew of him. Obviously, he was having fights then. He's a big Everton fan, isn't he? So his dad was in this morning, training this morning as well. So, no, he's, he's done brilliant, hasn't he, Bellew? Really, when he uh, first came on the scene, I was thinking, who's this mouthy bastard? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but he's, he's backed it up, hasn't he? Brilliant. Because I think a lot of people thought, you know, he, he's talked himself maybe into fights at times and, and got himself big fights and, and, you know, good luck to him. But he's backed it up. And what I think about Tony, I'm not, listen, I'm not sitting here like some analyst of boxing. And, you know, <laughs> I, I like to go and watch the boxing. I'm not judging fighters like that. But I always feel he... he Performs when the pressure or pressure's oh, on, or it's the biggest fight. And maybe you see him in smaller fights when he was coming up, and it, you know he he'd still win, but he maybe didn't look that spectacular, and people not quite sure. But then he's always the, you know those cleverly fights. Mm. Uh, I remember those at the start when he, he was sort of like the underdog, and eventually you know we overcome that. Obviously the one at, at Goodison Park, the World Tag, where he gets knocked down, and then McCarby, comes back. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the hay fights also. So. I think he's one of those people where when it really, the pressure's on, I think that's a big thing in, obviously, boxing or any sport, football, certainly. Certainly in football, we call that a big game player. So, obviously, you want someone playing off the skin week in, week out. But it's the big games that you're sort of remembered for and that make the difference. And I think uh, Bellew's fantastic at that. I, I remember the first time actually seeing Tony Bellew and it was a, it was a Liverpool select team. County Antrim were involved in some tournament. Cyprus had a team in it. Um, maybe Scotland or something as well. And he chinned, he chinned some Cypriot, but he looked like he was about 50, this guy, and Tony was big and always a puncher. And he chinned them, like knocked them spark out. And you don't see many knockouts in the amateurs. Mm. And he got up on the ropes. This was in Belfast, Andersonstown Leisure Centre. No man can take my power! That's the first memory I have of Tony Bellew, but what a, what a career he's had. Yeah, certainly the last two or three years has defined his career, isn't yeah. it? And if you talk that much, you create yourself high risk, but obviously a high reward scenario, don't you? And he's done that. So, yeah, fair play to him. And, and I guess against Usyk, he found his, ultimately found his ceiling, and that's all you can ask as a fighter, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, look, he had a goal. Usyk, and he, and he was doing OK in the fight. He won a few rounds at the start, but Usyk is... You're talking about, you know, he unified the cruiserweight division. You're talking about him potentially being the guy who can beat one of the top guys at the heavyweights now, you know, Joshua, Wilder or Fury. Mm. He's a quality, quality fighter and there's absolutely no shame in Tony Bellew losing to him and, and he went in and had a go. I think boxers should maybe take a leaf out of Tony Bellew's book and if you have a go and you lose Tran, there's, there's nothing wrong with that, really. I mean, he's a blue and you're a red, but he's the kind of fighter that unites a, a city. We know how tribal those divides are, but when someone like Tony Belly fights or Ricky Hatton in Manchester, the red and the blue, for that weekend at least, will just merge together. It's quite nice, that, what, what sport can do. Yeah, it's interesting that with boxers, because they're not, they're not shy a lot of the time in, in, in showing their allegiance to the football team, certainly in this city. But I think the city gets behind boxers as opposed to sort of thinking, you know, values are blue, the Smiths are all reds. I don't think anyone thinks I'm not going to watch the fight or I don't want them to win or, or that type of thing. No, I, I think it's a city thing. You know, you represent the city, I think, as a fighter. As you mentioned with Hatton there, I don't think, you know, Man United fans or Hart, you know, the city split, if you like, in the years when Ricky Hatton was taking, what was he taking, 20,000, 30,000 to Vegas or whatever yeah. he was fighting. It was, it was unbelievable. 
And that's that's the thing. I think uh, I think you fight for the city, really, when you when you're a boxer. That's something you you, you have that massive following. It's massive in Belfast, eh? You know, obviously the the two big teams in Belfast are in Scotland, Celtic and Rangers, and it can be. You know, if you kind of put your colours on the post and say, I'm a Rangers man or I'm a Celtic fan, you might get a bit of trouble. But it's very, very few people would say anything. But it's, it's the city get behind you and they don't care. You kind of can cross mm. divides and barriers, really. Boxing's a real working-class sport. People just get behind their fighters. Because I remember when we went to and see your old mate Stevie G, who's obviously doing a good job at Rangers, uh, the Europa League games at Rapid yeah, Vienna. Yeah. Before we started doing this podcast last year, and you were slightly hesitant to wear the Rangers scarf, even though we'd been invited up there by Rangers. Yeah. And at the time, I was thinking, oh, why Just is... because of the stick you might get back home. Yeah. Um, but... There was a little bit, but it wasn't too bad, was there it? Was a, there was a little bit. And it was a good bit, actually. Yeah, was um, it? But that's just, that's clowns, isn't it, really? You can't really pay too much attention to people like that. Stevie Gerrard said that you would be, of all the players he ever played with, he reckoned the best fighter. Why is that, okay. <laughs> I, don't know. I think that's a compliment, a good thing or a bad thing, now. I think a hard, a hard man in, in football in a, in a, is a good... In boxing types. Yeah. He yeah. said he reckoned you'd be a good, a good boxer of all the people that he knew. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was aggressive on the pitch at times. I thought I was a nice lad in his dressing room, but obviously not. I was tall top, but... Uh, but no, I mean, I'm not sure if Stevie ever had to go with the boxing. I think Stevie would be able to handle himself. He's a good side, good range, those long arms. <laughs> uh, really, big rocky fielding. I think he'd have been. Uh, he's from his neck of the woods. Mm. But no, it's interesting that people always ask that, you know, who's the, the tough guy, the dressing who's this or who's that, really. But you see some of the size of the players now in the Premier mm. League. Mm. Big lads, aren't they? Oh, there's some giants, isn't there? I mean, unbelievable specimens, so... The Liverpool dressing room maybe ever held me own, but looking throughout the Premier League, there's some big lads there. I'll probably keep my mouth shut. My dad has a fascination with Graham Souness, and he thinks he'd be, he would beat any footballer to yeah. ever lived in a fight. Like, you reckon, yeah. Uh, he always talks about him. He's, He's seen him playing the team I support back home, Crusaders. They played, used to be, when it was European Cup, it was the champions of each league. So the Crews won the league, and they were in the European Cup, yeah. and they drew Liverpool the first year. And... Uh, Souness and stuff were down at the Shore Road playing in this tiny place against Crusaders. My dad always talks about the size of Souness's nice. legs. Oh, yeah. But he reckons he's a, he's a proper hard man. He can bang a bit, right? Yeah, he'd look after himself. <laughs> do, you, um, do you spar or what do you do? Hit pads, spar? What do you do these No, days? we do the... I mean, we just come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, just do whatever. It could be you know, running or whatever, a bit of weights. And then Tuesday, Thursday, we do circuits. So they're obviously just laid out. And Monday, Wednesday, Friday, after your run or whatever, you might do some pads. Not really sparring, to be honest. I've, I've sparred Callum Smith in, in that ring there, the first ring. Blimey, have you really? Yeah, that was for the... All Smith brothers on it for charity, so you could pay to, to spar them. So I think I got the short straw. Yeah, tw- you really did, one. yeah. But no, it was good. We had three rounds. Thankfully, I think they were only two-minute rounds. <laughs> and uh, But no, it was good. Obviously, they, obviously, they're going through the motions and doing it for, for charity and good on them, raising a few quid. But it was it was... You know, it was, it was interesting, just in there. And one of the other brothers from outside actually spoke to me after about it and said how many punches I threw compared to him. I think I, I must have threw three or four times as many punches. Just, obviously, through fear of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or just, like, you, you feel like you've got to do something. You're, just, you're absolutely just blowing for tubes, mm-hmm. really. And then when they, they, put, they get you in the corner, you feel like you've got no way out. The, the ring feels like it's getting smaller and smaller. He's a big old lad. He's a big lad. Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. He's a big lad. I don't know how he makes 74 kilos. It's yeah, but it's the inside to actually... It's OK standing outside and looking at it. And, but actually, when you get inside and it's just you and it, and you just, you're getting pushed into somewhere mm. else, you, you feel like you can't 
get out type of thing. It's but listen, they, they were talking top class. Uh, and that, but that's what you're talking about. The Smiths doing that against you, but that's what like Usyk done against Belly. Belly, yeah, yeah. just yeah. maneuver kind him, of yeah. force him into corners and makes him work when he doesn't want to work. And mm. the really top top level fighters can do that. I mean, you still look in really, really good shape, by the way. So clearly, you're, you're keeping fit and keeping healthy, which I suppose has been part of your life for, for such mm-hmm. a long time. But talk about top-level performance, which is ultimately what you, you both were involved in for, for a number of years, and you still are. Big differences. Just about got that, aren't they? Yeah, I got that in. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, that, that, that'll make the cut. You obviously peaking, you know, two or three times a year for for one night and one performance. Mm-hmm. You obviously are having to get yourself ready every seven days and perform at a consistently high level. And you did it for a decade and, and a half for Liverpool. Is that the tough? Is that one of the toughest parts of being a top level sportsman, having to reset? Because this podcast comes around pretty quick every seven days. A 90-minute football game at the top level, that's got to be quite draining on the body after a number of years, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, through coming here, I can sort of speak about that through doing boxing training, if you like. And it's it's just a, a completely different fitness. I think you just get fit for what you need to do. And yeah. what you're saying is it's, it's more like the games keep you fit in some ways. It's not so much that right. it's crazy training that, people couldn't do really playing football. Okay, pre-season's hard, but, you know, you get used to it and running the different things. You tick over with the games, really. It's more the mental side of it, I would say, the sort of the come down mm. and then the sort of having to get yourself back up. How often would you say you, you, you'd wake up on a Saturday and think, God, I'm really not... I'm really struggling to get yeah. out of this? Does that happen quite often? Yeah, sometimes it's just like anyone. You, you wake up one morning, you, just, you get out of bed, don't you think... I never had a good sleep there. I don't mm, quite feel yeah. right. And that could happen. What used to get me through that mentally was if I was a very good perfectionist, as every player is, the way they look after themselves now. But I'd go into a game, and no matter how I felt, if I'd done everything right since the last game, I wouldn't worry about how I felt because I think I couldn't have done any more. So right. I've, I've, I haven't drank any alcohol. I've had the right food. I've trained. I've slept. I've, you know... This is what it is. So that so I never used to worry mentally. And don't get me wrong, sometimes you start again in the first 10 or 15 minutes, you know mm. your legs aren't there or something's not quite right. Or and I think of some of the bad games I had, but listen, I had hundreds of bad games, but a lot of them were not through not being physically right, through something just catching up with you, you know, a certain game or, and you can't come out after the game and say, Oh, I didn't feel you know, you just but you know yourself inside. And sometimes that's just the nature of it. But the difference mm. is I can still have a bad game, we can still win. It's not a, you know, that's a big difference, I think, with, with boxing and individual sports. You can't. The end of a career, any. then, if you're yeah. a good player, you know. Whereas, you know, we could play all for Stevie Jarrett, bang one in the top corner, win 1 0. No one, no one, move to the next game, forget how you play. And even if you draw or you lose, you can make amends in seven days. Whereas for a fighter, yeah. you know, you, you get maybe at this level two opportunities a year. And if, if one of them doesn't go right, as it didn't last time, mm. it's a long wait. To, to make it's a big, it's a big long, yeah. I, so I fought in December, and I looking like I'll fight end of July, early August. So that's that's half a year in between fights. And I'm in a lucky position that I lost my last fight, but I've, I'm still in a position where I can fight for big fights and and big names and and hopefully fight for titles again. So I, I'm one of the lucky ones. But you see so many times that a, a fighter loses a fight, and it's the end of a mm. career, really. That's. Why is that? Because that is something that I look at with boxing. It feels like one defeat. And they're done. And everything, it's like you've got to go back to the beginning. Yeah. Certainly the Mayweather effect has been a, a big part of that. I think the, the O, would you agree? Yeah, of course. And it's, it's keeping the O intact. It's, 
really, it's a bullshit. If you're fighting top guys in the world mm. and you lose, but it's a good fight, so what? Yeah. Why not? Why can he not just walk straight, or, you know, straight back into another big fight? Why does he have to go around the houses again? To... It kind of happened to me. I lost to Santa Cruz. I beat him. I lost to him. And then I had to have three fights before I got a crack at a world title. You know, it's... But you think of those great... I mean, I, I know what you're saying about the, the Mayweather thing and the old, but when you see people look back at fights in the 80s of, like, was it Haynes and Hagler yeah. and yeah. Spinks, all, all these fighters... And they all fought each other and probably lost one or yeah. two. I don't think anyone looks at them now and thinks, oh, he lost three, nah. he lost one, he lost two. People think, wow, what a fight that is. Mm. And I sometimes think exactly what we've just mentioned there, where maybe people are so obsessed with, with not losing that they actually don't have fights that are remembered in, in some ways. And we see this now where there's not the matchups that I think sometimes, certainly someone like me wants to watch, mm. certainly in boxing, you feel like there's a lot of you know, manoeuvring so people don't meet each other and meet at a certain time. Mm. And I always look back at those 80s fights the way they're remembered. Maybe, I'm, I don't know if I've got that right or wrong, but no, it just have, feels yeah. like that was a golden period that's really yeah. remembered because of not who won or lost, it's just like that fight. They, they were boxing on a whole much more regularly those days, fighters. Yeah. You know, you, you look at the records of, of something, Sugar Ray Robinson, 176 mm. fights. You know, these guys were... It wouldn't be out of out of the ordinary to see a guy with an 80 fight record at the end of his career. Yeah. Now these days, 27, 28 fights, yeah, and you're kind happen. of getting towards the end of your career, mm. and obviously that puts much more pressure on the individual fights because there are bigger gaps between yeah. them. That, uh, yeah, yeah, and that 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 plays a part in it. Guys like Ali, I think I don't know exactly how many fights he had in each year, but there's got to have been years where he's had maybe 10 fights in a year as yeah. a world champion. Yeah. It's, you, you couldn't do that now. Well, you'd be a journeyman but, if you did yeah. that, wouldn't you, really? Like Anthony Joshua, huge guy, a, a real proper athlete, fights twice a year. Do you think it's a waste fighting that irregularly when you're at that kind of physical peak? Probably, yeah. But, you know, he's probably earning 30 million a fight and going, well, yeah. I don't need the fight for twice a year will do me. I guess once a year will do me. Yeah. Once every 10 years will do me, you know. <laughs> Lovely. Just once will be fine, yeah. yeah. Once of that money. I guess that's the other thing is that as a footballer, you know, I mean, I think you got injured quite early on in your career, just around the early noughties. I think you played yeah. a lot of games, 2000, 2001, got injured. But you know you've got your contract and no matter how long you're on that bench, you're getting paid. Whereas for a fighter, you are relying on that paycheck and you have to get in that ring to get that paycheck. That puts another dimension of pressure because of course you've it got does. a family and mouths to feed and stuff and like that's, that. And that's where sponsors and stuff are important, I think, for especially young fighters trying to make it at the start when the, when the dough isn't really good. Mm. And let's get it right here, there's only probably 1%, less than 1% of the boxers that actually make it in worldwide boxing, like that can buy a house, can live comfortably after boxing, after a boxing career. There's not very many that, that can do it. So I think that a lot of guys need to fight. And you look at the journeymen, they fight because it's a wage, mm. and they're fighting 30 fights a year, maybe getting a grand a fight on average, and it's it's a wage for them. Mm. Plus, they're working as well, so, yeah. And actually, what, look, we, we had a journeyman on a few weeks ago, Jamie, just in case you missed it, but he was saying, very similar to you, he said, actually, I'm not training that much during the 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. It's the fighting every week that keeps, keeps me fit, fit yeah. and sharp. So it's a sort of a different side of the game that we don't really, you know, see as much, but it, it def definitely exists. I I'm guessing one of the things in your career you get asked the most about is that famous night in 2005. <laughs> the question is, does it get boring talking about that, honestly? No, not really. Uh, that's because, good, because we're going to talk about it today, so that's good. Uh, <laughs> listen, it was just an amazing thing to be part of, and 
when you think of Liverpool Football Club, it, it is one of the biggest clubs in the world. Mm. You know, it will be long after me, was long before me. But for me to be lucky enough to be involved in something that people say was, was the number one in, in the club's history, you know, that was the greatest night. And you think of the great players, managers and, and everyone who's come before. And for us to be part of that, really, and for something to be remembered for so long. And also, it wasn't just a Liverpool thing that, in some ways, I think it's a game that everyone remembers, you know, the whole of Europe remembers really watching that. It was a freak. It was, you know, it's... You know, you just say that one word and Liverpool is Istanbul and everyone knows exactly what you mean. So, as I say, I was very uh, privileged and very lucky to be involved in it. Our producer, Sai, is a diehard Liverpool fan. He was out there. Is it fair to say that took two years off your life, that game? He, he said at least. <laughs> uh, I imagine probably the, the most stressful first 45 minutes you've ever played. That AC Milan team, I mean, you'd got past a Juve, Chelsea, some, some good sides up until uh, the final. But that team, I and mean, when I read the list of, of players, I mean, it's just an unbelievable squad. You must have looked at that squad, refreshed your memory before going into that and just gulped at the, at the thought of them? Because they were one of the best teams in the mm. last 30 years, without a doubt. Unbelievable names and some of the greatest players ever. Not just of then. You right. think of Maldini. You know, you'd probably say he's the best left-back the, the game's mm. ever seen. Cafu was the right-back. You might say he's the best right-back you've ever seen. You know, Brazilian captain, really. A lot of half the team won the World Cup the year after, in 2006, with Italy. So, they'd won the European Cup, I think, two years before at Old Trafford against Juventus. So, listen, it, it, it was, you know, a huge challenge. I can't say I was going into the game worrying massively about them and, and, and because in some ways we couldn't believe we were there. <laughs> you know, we've just been on this unbelievable journey of, of getting there, massive underdogs, and it was more a case of trying and enjoying. You, you can never enjoy a game of that magnitude if you lose, but mm. it was more like, I can't believe we were in a Champions League final. Mm. You know, it was just great to be Chelsea, be there, See what happens. I think the pressure was on AC Milan. They were massive favourites, but of course, coming off at half time, I mean, I mean, um, you know, that wasn't a case of being in a European Cup final. That was a case I did not want to be in a European Cup final because we were we were on the verge of being remembered for something really bad. Yeah, that could have been five or six nil, really at half time. And, I, and you speak to people, and they always ask you, "Did you think you could come back?" No, I didn't. No one. I think it, it, I'd be lying. I think some Liverpool fans are like sometimes when they say, oh, I thought we'd come back. You know, because sometimes in football, something freaky can happen where you're losing 3-0 at half-time, but you know you're better than the other team. Something's happened, an offside goal, a penalty, you know, and you think we can still come back. But we were playing a team who we knew were better than us before the game. So it wasn't a case of, you can still win the game, because, mm. you, know, you know, football, the favourites don't always win, but you know they're better than you. And they beat me three and a half time. And you're going, this could... If we'd have lost that game 2-1, we could have still went... Disappointed we lost the final, but Chelsea was brilliant. Istanbul was a great, you know, stadium. We played there, we beat Juventus. Great journey. If you lose 6-0, you never, ever want to speak about the Champions League ever again because that's the thing that sticks out and that's an embarrassment on the club's history, really, as well as yourself. There's a story going about Belfast. Um... I don't know how true it is or not, but there was a, a former professional boxer. So he had he had AC Milan and a big accumulator, and he okay. was to, to win a load of dough. And apparently, he bought this packed bar watching the Champions League final around. Like everyone got a drink, thinking AC Milan have done it here. But <laughs> I don't know how true that story is or not. And it's a well-known boxer from back home, but um, and you might you might have a guess at who it was. But 
Yeah, that's a, that's that's one of the stories I heard about it. But well, you heard plenty of that, you know, round here of sort of. Could you imagine how Everton fans were yeah. or Man United fans at that time and and people like that? You know, cause the game's going late, going to bed, or the game's one and a half time, then getting woken up and then seeing, obviously, Steven Gerrard lifting the European Cup. But mm. listen, it was luck, it was fate, it was whatever it was. Those mad, crazy six minutes. But the, the mad thing about it is how good we feel about it how bad AC Milan must feel yeah. about it in some ways. And, yeah. you know, it must be something that's always brought up with them. But besides this, you know, we scored three goals in six minutes. If you take the six minutes out of that game, they gave one of the best performances you'll ever see. Yeah. Even after it went three, yeah, three yeah. we're hanging on. Do we're that, just, you made a couple of oh, unbelievable, unbelievable So their actual performance on the night was, was out of this world. And sometimes in football... That's why it's the game that we love. It just strange things can happen. So, so talk me through it. So it was they scored in the first fifty seconds of the game. Yeah. What did that do? I mean, you can only speak, I guess, for yourself. Although you see the players around you, you obviously remember that goal going in. What's the first thing that goes through your head? This might sound strange, but in some ways, when you go one 0 down so early in a game with the under underdogs, I wouldn't say it takes the pressure off, but it's a bit like, look, I just go. And, play now as much the sort of tension's gone mm. because you, you, you're losing really there's nothing sort of to hold on to as such even though it was so early so I wasn't in that bad a state really when you know it went 1-0 if you actually watch the first half we didn't perform that badly really but I think when two and three goals in you're sort of thinking wow you know this is uh... and they were good goals too yeah and also it was a case of I think a lot of people felt with us getting there, how are they there? They shouldn't. We finished fifth in the Premier League. Mm. They shouldn't be there, really, in some ways. How, how have they got past Chelsea? How have they got past Juventus? And I think it was more a case of everyone thinking, okay, now they're showing the true colours in some ways, really. And that was that that fear for me at half time. I'm not so much a fear, a reality check, really, as if it shouldn't really be here. Where's it, <laughs> in where's, some ways. Yeah, right. Where did you watch it? And what did you think? Just watched it at home. Can't remember too much about the game. I just. And that's when I was supporting Liverpool back then. Um, <laughs> I remember a comeback, you know, what a what a comeback. And people still, we're talking about it now, you know what I mean? Mm. Well, we talked about for years and years to come, but that was, that was a real, like, I don't know, it's got to be an inspiration to a lot of different people and a lot of different types of people. But to come back from 3-0 down at half-time against probably the best team, club team in the world at that, at that time... Yeah. It was amazing. And you, you've always credited Rafa in saying his demeanour in the dressing room was just unbelievable, given the situation and how clinical he was with the changes he made and, and the tactical adjustments. Not an easy sort of 15 minutes for him. And you nearly came out for the second half with 12 men on the pitch, didn't you? Yeah, he, uh, Rafa, you got remember Rafa Benitez's English wasn't what it is now. It was his first season at Liverpool. So he comes in at half-time and... And people always, that's the one thing I always get asked, what was half-time in Istanbul? And I think people expect that we'd all come in here, we'd all argue and all fight. I mean, everyone was, was speechless because it's the biggest game of your life. It's not a case of no one's given 100%. It's, it was more a case of, these are too good for us, really. Yeah. Sometimes you'd have that, some, you, you might be in a fight sometimes, even when you're a youngster or a certain fighter, it's it's all, better, yeah. I'm up against this or whatever. And you come in and every, it's the biggest game of your life. Everyone just sort of, sort of sat there, really, a bit like, you know... And Rafa come in. Rafa's not a... He's not a shouter, really. He's not someone to motivate you with his words, really. It's more about making decisions and making changes, and that's what he did. He changed the system. He made a substitution uh, at half-time. There was a bit of commotion with Steve Finnan. 
he didn't want to come off. Rafa told someone else he was coming off, Jimmy Traore, Steve Finnan. The physio then came in and said, Finnan can't continue, he's injured. So Finnan erupted, it was like one of the players had to come off the shower, someone else had to go in. <laughs> so you had to make different changes. But the reason we went out with 12 was one of the players thought he was coming on and he wasn't. So he got stripped off, Jibreel Cissé. <laughs> so when Rafa was writing the names on the board, out of the corner of eyes, obviously just seen someone in a red shirt, you know, Cissé sat there. So he's put his name on. And Rafa's talking about how we're going to get back into the game, how it is. And I always tell the story of, you know, you think you're down and out and then Rafa gives this great speech and then you think, and you look at the team and the board and you think, we can do this. It's because we've got 12 fucking men. <laughs> <laughs> so then he has to tell Jibril Cissé he's not coming on and uh, saved him for extra time. But it was a, a crazy 15 minutes, really. And I always think of, that was the last time we were together as a team, sort of not playing. Once the game gets going, you don't get back in that dressing room. So from that to the next time you're back in the dressing room, you're coming in with the cup, having been 3-0 down. It's just bizarre, really, but... I said one of the great games. It's one of the ones you'd love to have been there. Both times, half time, just like a fly on the wall. Mm. And then at the end of the game, <sighs> yeah, unreal. So you walk out the the changing room down the tunnel and obviously the, the thing that you can always remember is the, the Liverpool fans in full voice. You'll never walk alone, even though you were 3-0 down. At what point could you hear them? Because presumably the noise in the, in the dressing room is quiet. At what point do you, do you hear them and what did you think when you did hear them? You could hear it a little bit in the dressing room. A little bit. It was almost like, a, like an echo. You knew it was sort of in the distance, sort of coming through. I think it was almost like a cry for help, even from the Liverpool fans, really, in some ways. But it was... Uh, I mean, that's, we always talk about the great support, you know, that we that we had. And you see it now, the Liverpool supporters. Big European nights at Anfield. That was a, a big European away day, uh, really. And it almost felt like I think they felt almost the game had gone but it was we're going to show everyone how good a support we are really in some ways and then I mean when you see supporters now certainly supporters who were supporting the club before I was even playing and saw the success of the 70s and 80s and say things like you know the greatest night in my life greatest you know moments of my life and they're big things and that's, that we're very lucky I think in football where you, you feel if, you, if you're involved in something big like Liverpool are now for the mm. title it changes people's lives. It, it, it's, it's a moment in time that you, you'll never, ever forget and you'll always look back on. Supporters take great pride in that. Right? Like, see what you were, you were saying about um, 3 0 down at half time. There can't have been anyone there as a Liverpool fan thinking they're going to come back and mm. win this. But, like, Northern Ireland, we're playing well now at the minute, but you know, we used to go and get tanked by teams constantly. Germany, we always seem to draw Germany and World Cup and European qualifiers. But the fans take something and a lot of pride out of being noisy and being the best fans mm. in the world, and that's probably similar with Liverpool fans too. Mm. The one thing that's common in all sport is, is momentum shifts. You know, one punch can, can change a fight in your favour, even if you're seven, eight rounds down on the cards. You needed to, to score early in that second half to give yourself even a glimmer of hope if the door was ajar, and it was probably slammed shut, but somehow mm. 54 minutes in and the goal comes are you then thinking this is still out of our reach, or you, was there? Could you visibly feel a lift in the team at that point? No, I always say the first goals give us hope. I think really, and almost made the scoreboard look respectable. Yeah, three-one, give the supporters something to cheer. I think three-two was the massive goal, the belief. Two right? minutes later, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, two minutes later, and that's when. And the funny thing about that goal was that if you actually watch it back. No one celebrates with the goal scorer. 
you just see everyone. No one has to speak to it. It's just something, you know, mentally between you. It's get back at the ball and start again. But you knew then something, I wouldn't say special was happening. I knew we'd get back to 3-3. When it went 3-2, it was a case of get this game started. We're not going to be celebrating this goal with Smash. He runs off delighted that he scored, but as you see, no one runs to him. Everyone just runs back to the halfway line. And I think 3-2 is massive belief. And you were a part of uh, the, the move that led to the penalty. From, from where you saw it, just talk me through. Was it a penalty? Blatant penalty. <laughs> Could have been sent off. Didn't expect anything else. Uh, Didn't expect yeah. anything else. No, but that's... I mean, sometimes... I don't know what it's, like, what it's like in a fight as well, sometimes, where, you know, you're playing, you're always told to use your brain. I'm sure mm. that's the same in the ring. But sometimes your emotion takes over and your heart takes over. And I don't think that's always a good thing, but... Wasn't a good thing games, for me in my last fight. That's about <laughs> yeah. 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 But... Me running out with the ball, that's that's me being a, a kid on the street. That's not really what I should be doing. That's not my game. That's mm. not my strength. But you just get caught up in things. And it happens a few times playing for Liverpool because it's, because it's your hometown club. You get a bit emotional about it, maybe a bit more than other people. So when you're in games like that, you sort of, as I said, you go back to being the kid on the schoolyard where, you know, you're going to try and win the game yourself. And I'm running out with the ball. Stevie ends up gets on the end of it. We get it get a penalty from it. Obviously, that's the goal that gets us back to 3-3. <laughs> but sometimes in sports, I think your heart can take your places, but it's not something that you want to be using too often. Yeah. I don't know if it's, it's similar to you, but you don't want to be getting too carried away in, in, in things like that at times because you know, a lot of the time you come a cropper, but in that one, it worked for us. I guess in your sport, the, the, the problem with it is, is it can get you hurt long-term and can take years off your career. Well, you, you have to... I suppose you always kind of... Heart can take you a long distance, but in boxing you have to be thinking as well. And in my last fight against Josh Warrington, where I got hurt in the first round, if I'm using my head, I hold on, or I even take a knee and get a bit of recovery, but I just fight back. And I was hurt, and I went from bad to worse. First two rounds in particular were just like... What am I doing here? Mm. Watching it back, I annoy myself watching it because it's like it's just it's real novicey, stupid stuff. But that's just me. It's like machoism and heart taking over any sort of thought process whatsoever. And it it can work a lot of times, mm. but for me that night it, it didn't work. But um, as you said, it, it, it worked for Liverpool, didn't it? Mm-hmm. So you've gone into to extra time and presumably you're knackered because you've given so much and you made a couple of game-changing sort of last-ditch challenges in the box, as did two or three of your, your players. Dudek as well made a couple of amazing saves in extra time. You're then facing half an hour more of football, which for the fans, it goes like that. But for you, when you're already on tired legs, I think you've got cramp as well. Mm. That's a long time to play against arguably the best team in the world. What was that sort of half an hour plan was it just to hang on and try and get to penalties or did you did you think let's try and pinch one here and, and get it over no it was to get to penalties was that it? was that was the idea we, we couldn't cope with that team we couldn't take that team on blow for blow certainly at that stage of the game really <clears throat> because as I said after the, the the three goals we got back to 3-3 it wasn't just the extra time it was the last half an hour it was almost like the last hour if the game really felt like we were hanging on. And it was a case, let's just get to penalties and then, you know, <laughs> see where we get to. Listen, you're always hoping something could happen, but I think the idea... The manager wouldn't come on and say... Because, obviously, the manager comes on at the end of the game before extra time, he wouldn't say, right, we're going for penalties. Mm. But we're all not stupid. We're all mm. you know, we're experienced people. And it's a case, OK, do that, make sure, fix this problem, be careful of this player here, these are making changes... 
can we nullify them? Could we do something on the break? Maybe. But the main thing for us, and I think the thing for AC Milan was they've been thinking the opposite. Yeah. Because obviously, they're in such a situation where if they lose this final, haven't been 3 0 up, it's going to be remembered, as we know, for such a long time. And for us, if we get to penalties, it's almost like we've won anyway. In some ways, haven't been 3 0 down. But for them, there's big pressure on them in that, in that extra time. And as I said, we were hanging on. And listen, there's a lot of luck involved there. I mean, the chance Shevchenko misses. He has two, you know, bites of the cherry with the save from the keeper, and then he comes in for a volley with an open goal virtually, and, and the keeper gets his hand to it. Mm. It's just sometimes your name's on the cup, and, that, and that's what it was. Yeah, and of course at that point, the penalty takers are chosen, but he didn't. Uh, Rafa didn't choose the, the kind of usual taker. I don't think Alonso was picked, was mm-hmm. he? He was your regular taker. Did you offer to take a penalty? Mm. Did you? Yeah. I mean, the manager always just goes around. They're just checking if anyone, what state everyone's in, do you want to take one? And I said yes, and he just walked straight past me. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I don't think I'd be on one. But, I mean, the clever thing with Rafa, if you look at it, is people always say you should, you've got to practice penalties and, and, and all this type of stuff. And, and I agree with that. You know, There's not no harm in practising, but... Three out of our four penalty takers were, were substitutes. Well, is that because they were fresher? Yes, because he, I think he felt with, you know, 120 minutes, people going down a cramp, whether they'd be actually physically strong enough to, you know, to get the, the exact contact that he'd want yeah. in, in a penalty. So, and the one who missed was the one who played 120 minutes. That was John Anarisa. Mm. So, Didi Amman had come on, so he scored, Cissé the same, and, and Vladimir Smyser. So... That's also thinking on your feet and not being too prepared before the game, right? If it goes to penalties, we'll do X, Y, Z because lots of things happen in the game. So that was that was very clever thinking from the manager. It must be a weird for you at that point because you have, once you know you're not taking a penalty, you become a spectator. Mm. So your influence physically, as far as the game is concerned, is now over, yet the game is still on. So presumably you're standing on the halfway line with all the, with all the players. What's the emotion that you're feeling at that point? How, you know, you're exhausted, but you're nervous. Just, just talk me through what it's like to be in that position from a first-person perspective. Well, if you watch me, because sometimes the camera pans on us, you know, the, the ones waiting on the halfway line, and we made a great start in the penalty shootout. They missed the first two, we scored our first two. So in some ways you're thinking, we're nearly right. there. And then I, I always remember Smyser scored and he started celebrating. And I'm thinking, oh, no. You know, you just think something could come back to haunt you. Yeah, you're thinking, yeah. no. So actually, I come out of the group and I'm screaming, I'm like, just get back, get back. Because he's like waving to the crowd. Like, oh, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? You can just imagine that yeah. shock getting thrown back at you if, if you lose. So I come out and I'm screaming him to just get back. So that's the only time I got involved. And my part in, in the shootouts is just when Shevchenko ran up and then he misses the penalty and I'm notoriously known as not being the quickest of uh, footballers but I actually break out the group and it's one and I get to the keeper first so I don't know if it shows uh, the cramp wasn't as bad as first thought oh that's not as slow as people say so that was I mean that's you talk about Istanbul the game the goals all the different things but if there's one moment you could pick in your career it's when you realise the keeper saved the Shevchenko penalty and it's that's the best picture actually because there's a lot of pictures of of a game like that and the cup and with supporters and players and that but there's a picture of us all on the halfway line and it is like the start of the 100 metres mm. in that you can see everyone's face that it, this is just as Judex saving it's the realisation of everyone's face and everyone's just ready to take off and that, that's my favourite one because that's that's the one moment in my career I'd love to go back there, to. There's got to be so much pressure on AC Milan Penalty takers, like just oh. talking about Shevchenko or missing the penalty, like being three 0 in front, 
you're probably thinking, well, this is our game. We, we've come back here. It's three all. We have to win this. Mm-hmm. AC Milan, their heads must be down. And the, there must be so much pressure on them boys, like the hitting penalties. Yeah. And, and obviously there was because mm-hmm. you won. But um, it must have been so hard. Shevchenko, you know, what a player. I can remember sitting at my mate's house. All of my, I was a gooner, all of them Liverpool fans. And when Shevchenko put that ball down, I thought, I cannot imagine a situation where any sportsman would be under Ziv. more pressure yeah. than this. <laughs> yeah. And that ball hits Dudek and you, and, and you just explode into life. What is, that, what is that moment like and those moments afterwards? What are you... Is it just a total blur as far as you're concerned? No, I always... Thinking back to it now, because what everyone does is on a penalty shootout, everyone runs to the keeper... And there's a big pile on us, and you don't want to be the bottom of that. Too. <laughs> uh, but I just had that, I was just that happy, and I felt like I had that much energy. You know, when you onto the scream, shout, sing, run, anything, you just had this, and that had to come out your body. And, and I actually run to the keeper, high five, and then just keep running. And I jumped right over the hoardings. <laughs> uh, and the camera stays on, I think, all the lads jumping on dude. But I ended up just running down this running track. Ended up finding me uh, family and friends there in, in the. In the, in, where the supporters were, which was just a, a freak in I didn't have a clue where they were in the stadium, really. So it was just an, uh, it was just a moment where you just got that uh, much energy. I couldn't have sort of just stopped with someone or yeah. whatever it be. Just, just madness. Right. Some, there was some rumour floating around that you passed out in the crowd. Is that absolute nonsense? Is that... No, I never passed out, but I, I sort of... Not passed out, but, you know, you, you shattered, I? Yeah. There's a picture of me sort of... I know my family and... Friends are on top of me, and I've just sort of got my head in. More getting a breather, really, from, <laughs> yeah. uh, from the run I've just done, yeah. But, yeah, it was just brilliant to share that moment as well, mm. you know, with your family and friends. And that's why I go back to sort of with Liverpool because win the league. It's, it's more for the, the people, really, of the city as opposed to the players. That's what a sport is for. It's for those moments, isn't it? You work your whole career from, from you know, your debut and all the hours you put in in between to those pinnacle moments that are like a snapshot. It doesn't matter how many times you tell those stories... Mm. They never lose that kind of passion, that intensity. Mm. And, and you've had a few of those as well. What is it like when you have that moment, you're in that moment and you think to yourself, I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life now? I don't think you're thinking that way in the moment. I'm going to remember this for the rest of my life. Because if you did, you would probably take a moment to try and soak it all in. But you're just, you know, all over the place. And you don't, well, I don't personally remember a lot of, you know, the big wins I've had or fighting at Windsor Park or... but. In hindsight, I would like to tell myself, just take a moment, remember this, try and soak it all in. You never do. You're in the moment and you're enjoying it and loving life, really. Mm. I guess you realise that once, once the career's done, it's done. So those are the moments that you've got to hang on to. What you have to remember as well is you're creating memories for other people too. Like yeah. the, the people who are in Istanbul will remember that for the rest of their mm. lives. And the same with me, New York and Vegas and these trips abroad and Windsor Park. You're creating memories for people and these are things that people will talk about in 20, 30, 40 years' time. Mm. Obviously, you're, you're looking at the last one, two years of your career and then you were contemplating retirement three or four months ago. Is retirement a strange thing when you eventually do it? What's it like when you make that decision and you walk away? I knew a couple of years before I was going to, when I was going to retire, uh, really. So, and to be honest, I, I speak to a lot of players and, and, and people really miss I think Stevie, you know, when I speak to Steve, I think he really misses playing. I don't. I miss when I see Liverpool playing in a big game. I think, oh, I'd love to be you know, involved in that you know, semi-final against Barcelona mm. or... A, Huge league game. It's maybe because I had Sky to go into, and I'm someone who I don't keep looking back at my career thinking, "Oh, I wish I was still playing. I wish I was yeah. still playing." I think, well, I loved it. I done that. I moved on, and, and I'm doing what I do now. I love what I'm doing now. And maybe I'm lucky. I've got something to focus on with, yeah. with Sky and the games. Really, 
because uh, I can't imagine for some players that you know they're waiting for the phone to ring. There's not much happening. They yeah. keep maybe hanging in there, trying to hopefully you know a club will come out of nowhere to force them not to retire. But no, I'm, I'm fine really, and I think I'm quite lucky because I think you know you speak to the PFA now. I think a lot of players end up getting divorced, gambling, losing the money, all these different things. I think a lot of it is the mental problem of coming to terms with the football career ending. Did you ever think of going to the States or anywhere at the end? No, I mean, I don't think they wanted me, to be honest. I think it's more a case of they want one superstar, an attacking mm. player or a goal. So Robbie Keane's been yeah. over there, hasn't he? And Stevie Gerrard's been there, Zlatan's there, Rooney. So I don't think they want cloggers at the back <laughs> uh, at 35, 36, paying them a few quid to go to the States, yeah. really. But I think it possibly is a great way to end your career. But... I knew very early I only wanted to play for Liverpool. Yeah, good uh, and I think it's always nice, not, not just for me, I think when I look at, at football as a whole, even in European football, I do think it's special when someone just plays for one club, Yeah, really. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I think when you think of say, someone like Messi now, I'd hate to see him move from Barcelona because yeah, yeah. I just love him to play for, for Barcelona, that Been one club. That, yeah. You think of Maldini and Baresi, those AC Milan. Now, of course, I'm not putting myself on them <laughs> levels at all, so don't... Don't make out that I am. <laughs> uh, but I've always looked at that as, as being special. So I've always thought, if I could do that, now don't get me wrong, if I was 30 and, and I was sub for Liverpool every week, I'd have said, no, I want to go and play. I get that. So, But that, that drove me on to make sure I played every week because mm. I, I didn't want to leave. Loyalty for clubs, it's not, it's not rife these days, no, really. It's, it's a good sign when a player sticks with a club. An extra it? 10 grand a week could force someone away for 20 grand a week, whatever it is. Sort of stick. It's admiral, like, did you stuck with Liverpool your whole career? Mm. Mm, it is. We're going to do our 32 second challenge with 32 red now. So I'm going to read you a list of words uh, and I just want you to say the first thing that comes into your head when I list you a word uh, in 32 seconds. Are you ready? Go on. Liverpool the city. Passion. Bootle. Rough. Liverpool the team. Amazing. Everton. Awful. Anfield. Cathedral. Tony Bellew. Loudmouth. Istanbul. <laughs> Best night of my life. Number 23. Legend. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Neville. Twat. Best player you played with? Gerard. Best player you played against? Henri. Footballer you wouldn't like to box? Pepe Rainer. Best Liverpool player of all time? Daglish. Rafa Benitez. Tactic. Jamie Carrigan, wow. absolute pleasure to have you on. 23 of them? That was, well, 32 seconds. Oh, 30, oh 32 seconds, sorry. Yeah. We might have even run over, I don't know, but that was great. <laughs> Have you enjoyed yourself? Loved it. Been good to have you on, mate. Thank you very, very much. Okay. All the best, man. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you have been listening to and watching round 13 of TKO here on Joe together with 32 Red. Our thanks to Jamie Carragher. Make sure you check out our other episodes with Anthony Crawler, David Hay, Chris Eubank. Uh, And next week, we'll be catching up with this man. Join me, Kerry Kays, Chris Lloyd, Cal Frampton, round 14 of TKO. Don't miss it. You've been listening to TKO on Joe together with 32 Red.